Last night we gathered for prayer. This afternoon, the prayer labyrinth across the parking lot. That is because there is a union-wide emphasis of prayer going on, prayer for renewal in our five states. I hope you'll take a 45 minutes this afternoon sometime and try the prayer labyrinth and that you'll keep praying through next weekend because that is the official weekend when all of us, not just the 66,000 members here in our conference, but, but all five states will be praying for renewal, for an outpouring of God's spirits, which means how to stand in the way so God's will falls right on us. That's my new, that's my new definition for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So I wonder this morning... If you are as humble as I am, have you ever put your own name into Google? Come on. When you put your own name into, I know you've done this. When I put my name into Google, I find out that I'm a real estate agent with Caldwell Banker in Sioux City, Iowa. Like that? I also find out that I happen to be the captain of the men's fencing team from Michigan State University. <laughs> but my favorite, when I Google my name, is that I am a 270-pound wrestler <laughs> on the amateur tour. Just for fun, you know, the worship team that was here today, if you Google Tom Kim, he is essentially any kind of physician you ever want to go see. <laughs> and a few dentists as well. Tom Kim is also, however, a professional disc golfer. Disc golfing, I didn't know anything about it till I realized that's what Tom does. He does. He's based out of Silver Springs, Maryland, and I, as I told him this morning, I'm sorry that you are ranked 948th in your division. <laughs> what happens if you put... Uh, Oh, no, my favorite about Tom Kim, we can't skip this one, because Tom Kim is apparently is actually on the UC Berkeley campus, and he has his own website. You can just go to TomKim.com, and if you do that, something might pop up. <laughs> Not bad. No wonder you were asking us to do the motions with the music. <laughs> he just never stops, so we can... Just turn him off. If you Google Woody Totten, Woody, Woody, uh, apparently there is something called a Woody Vine. And so Woody most often comes up under the botanical references. <laughs> you can find Woody at the botanical gardens in any city you want to go to because of the Woody Vines. If you Google Joy Riddle, she is a philanthropic executive in Colorado with a company called Black Tie. But you're, actually, you're also a real estate agent in West Virginia. Uh, but my favorite is this. You are the title of a book in reverse. A classic, The Riddle of Joy. G.K. <laughs> Jesterson, C.S. Lewis. This has been out of print. You are out of print since about 1984. As I told her this morning, that's about the year her first child was born. She's out of print. Out of circulation. If you Google Dan Narati, there seems to be this great conspiracy online to, to associate that name with these other two, Laura and Steve. Wherever you see Dan, you see Laura and Steve, and often it's in something called the Adventist yearbook. They all pop up together. However, you can also see that there is some Dan Narati who's a pretty good cyclist who, who ranks in a few local races in Big Bear. He tells me it's true, actually. This is not fictitional. Check it out this afternoon after sundown. 
If you Google Craig Zupan, who is sitting up here with a name like Craig Zupan, you are the only one. <laughs> you really are a pediatric pathologist, chief pediatric pathologist for Loma Linda. I could show you lots of pictures of tumors, but no other Craig Zupan. It's, um, it's a, f a form of identity theft, Googling your own name, just seeing who else shares your name. But in the last 10 years, this is a word we really haven't known that much about. Identity theft or identity fraud, it's also called now. It's quite a broad category, branching out into four different areas. Identity theft, identity fraud happens when your identity is exploited for someone else's unlawful or selfish purposes. I understand that the number one city in all of our country, the most cases of identity theft reported in Arizona, in the city of Phoenix. Number two city, a little closer to home, Riverside, California. Number, one, number two city in the country for the most reported cases of identity fraud. And what they tell us, the sad thing, is we know so much more about it now, but few consumers do anything to protect themselves that we really are quite vulnerable when it comes to someone else exploiting our good name and switching places, giving us their bad reputation. Exploiting someone's identity for selfish purposes, it really isn't a new idea at all because in our Bible, from the beginning of our story, our faith story in Genesis, it appears that someone is exploiting the good reputation of God for selfish purposes almost from the moment creation was complete. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. The conversation begins with Eve in the garden. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will surely die, some of your Bibles say. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. We can summarize all that the serpent says really in one sentence. Don't trust God. Don't do it, Eve. God is not who God said God is. God doesn't have your best interest in mind. Actually, God's kind of holding you back. You could be more. Don't fall for it. God is a fraud. Don't trust God, Eve. For his own selfish purposes, someone is busy exploiting the character of God. We read it again in the book of Job, chapter 1, verse 6. Then there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also was among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning from evil. And then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made him a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions, and you've increased his land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. 
And we can summarize all that Satan says here in one sentence. Again, I don't trust you, God. You are not who you say you are. Job worships you because you bless him. Job loves you because you fill his bank account. You're, you're, what is all this relationship talk? You're no different than any other deity in the sky. You bless at will, you curse at will. If Job knew what I knew, Job wouldn't love you either. Identity theft, the exploitation of someone's reputation for selfish purpose. And it happens again in Isaiah. It's a very ancient poem, Canaanite Hebrew poem. Now, after hundreds of years of Christian tradition, we read this and apply it to Satan. Isaiah 14, beginning with verse 13. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. And we can summarize again in one sentence what Satan says. I really don't trust you, God. You are not all of that. I, I could be that. In fact, I could sit higher than that. In fact, get out of my way and watch me ascend above your throne, God. I don't trust you. And if they knew, they wouldn't trust you either. Exploiting the character of someone else for your own selfish purposes. And finally, we read it in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9. The conclusion, the consequences of Lucifer, Satan's situation. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and the angels with him. The beautiful creature, Lucifer, leads the entire creation astray, hurled down and tempting and wooing the created order with him. All with the words, don't trust God. God isn't who God says. Listen to me. Exploitation of someone else's identity for your own selfish purposes. It isn't that different from, you remember the old movie, The Wizard of Oz? And at the mention of the name of the wizard, everybody shook and the little munchkins bowed and people trembled and the wizard was to be feared and, until all the way when Dorothy and Toto made it into the Emerald City because she had to visit the wizard. And once they get there and, and inside the chambers, Toto goes and pulls that curtain back and exposes the wizard. And you can see what everybody's been afraid of is just a a little caricature of a man, just a, a little guy sitting behind a bunch of knobs portraying something that wasn't. The exploitation of someone's identity for your own selfish purposes. There isn't any place we can read in Scripture that lays out very clearly how it is that such a beautiful creature, creature as Lucifer in a perfect universe would somehow ascribe to be seated on a throne higher than God. There isn't any place in Scripture you and I can open and we could read from start to finish the conversation between God and Lucifer. We could see the face-to-face, -face, back and forth conversation, the fight, the anger, the hostility, the resentment, the, all of that jealousy that must have been coming from the creature. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could open the Bible and somewhere read that conversation recorded? But the best we have are the texts that I read to you this morning. Even in Revelation 12, it is a summary. And this, 
the devil, the Satan, that dragon is hurled from heaven and he tempts people. At best, it's a summary. People tempted with the words, don't trust God. This now becomes the question before all questions for Christianity, really. It's the thing before the thing. Theology professors like to use the word prolegomenal. It's what you do before you really do the other stuff. It's the, con the first conversation. Everything else could halt while we just pause and say, but is this true? Is God who God says God is or not? And maybe for Christians and Adventist Christians, we ought to spend more time pausing and asking this question first. Is God who God says? Who is God anyway? Who is our God? For we spend much time talking about when will God return? And when God returns, what's he going to do with sinners? And what, what will God do with people like you and I who are repentant, but we continue to fall day after day? We spend time talking about what will heaven be like? Will there be marriage there? Will our dead children be given back to us in our arms? What in the world is God going to do with second, third, and fourth spouses? How's he going to figure that out? We spend a lot of time talking about our created world. When did it happen? Did anything predate our earth here in this sphere? How long did it take? Did, how exactly did all of that happen? We spend much time talking about Jesus once he enters the world. Really, what is his nature? And, and exactly what does it mean for, for the problem of sin to be erased? What, what's required of him to set things right and for creation to have, have the salvation opportunity with God? We spend a lot of time talking about um, things like homosexuality. What does God think about homosexuality and divorce and just war and politics? So we know what to think about homosexuality, divorce, just war politics. We spend time trying to decide what our mission is, and then we pray for a renewal of this mission, whatever it is. We spend time trying to figure out how to interact with the fractured kingdom we live in, the broken creation, fallen creation, which we're a part of. How do you do that better? We spend time trying to understand how to live godly lives. Yet all of those questions, all of that conversation, any debate, any discussion is all predicated upon the reality, who is our God? It's the question before all of those questions. So we pause now for these eight weeks to ask that question, okay, who is our God? I'm going to give four principles this morning that will guide our conversation now the next seven weeks. Four principles for, for how to have the, our conversation together. Everyone will do the work in this conversation, not only just locally, but lo globally. Everyone does the work of asking these questions about God. And this is a little bit different than when I was growing up in the church and when my parents were growing up in the church, where you sort of waited for people to tell you the authoritative decision. Does that ring a bell for anybody? You just wait to hear what the authoritative position is. And we understand, especially after taking seriously verses from Jesus, words of Jesus, love the Lord your God with all your mind. That means every one of you. And in good Protestant tradition, everyone does the work of asking questions about God. All of us, from the youngest all the way up. When Kirby joined our family, actually, it was long before we even got married when we were dating. I think it was soon after I brought him home the first time. I remember the conversation in the back room when he left. That guy, he asked so many questions. 
He just, uh, he just, why can't things just be for him? Why does he have to ask all these questions? We didn't ask a lot of questions when I was growing up in my home. Things were, they just were the way they were. And then here comes one asking questions, stirring the pot. So he's a scientist, we now understand. You see, everybody does the work. Everybody asks the questions. That'll be our first principle. The second is we'll need a healthy understanding of our limitations and also our abilities. Two sides of the continuum here. A healthy understanding of our limitations and also our abilities. Children of Israel were given, given these words in Exodus chapter 29, verse 29. God says to them, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may follow all the words of the law. The secret things, that is, some things that belong to the Lord their God, we're never going to know. But the things that are revealed, we will know, and our children will know, and they're not all revealed yet. And on two sides of the continuum, it works like this, a posture of humility, because we really can't know everything. Some things will be secret, and they'll be only for God, right? So a posture of humility, otherwise we'll overstate, we will over-affirm what we can and can't know. But on the other side of the conversation is a, a bravery, a, a, brave, a braveness in our ability to know something. We can know some things, some things will be given to us and our children. It isn't just, we'll throw your hands up because we can never know God's ways are higher than our ways. No, we have some ability to know something. And having a, a respect for that continuum of our abilities and our limitations in this conversation is very, very important. We must have a posture of humility and bravery. We don't get all of the answers in this life. J.B. Phillips said decades ago, we need adequate answers. A third principle to guide our conversation. The answers really do have to make sense in this world where you and I live. Here and now. I saw this gorgeous picture in the paper early in the week, and I tried to find it. I can't find it now. The highest point in the Sierra Nevada mountain range. Upon this high point, the highest tower watch, uh, fire watch tower, where some person, a fire ranger, lives about seven months out of the year with a pair of binoculars and a, a little cabin and a catwalk where he just walks around and around for seven months, all alone and quiet. Beautiful picture, high above everything else. I saw that picture early in the week and thought, that is what I need. I need that cabin, high above everything else. I can take my stack of books. I have a very tall stack now for the next eight weeks. I could go to that cabin. I just read about God, and I can just decide what I think about my God. That's what I need. No, because whatever answers we come up with have to work in the real world. It is a critique of 20th century theology that the answers they came up with were born out of little private cubicles and, and, and didn't make sense everywhere around the globe and thus liberation theology was born. The answers have to make sense in Guatemala and in Bangkok and in Burma. Yeah, the answers must make sense in the real world where you and I live. 
I understand that we won't always agree on the answers that we're finding, and there's no better illustration than our last few weeks of worship together and our last few weeks of conversation. For while I'm standing here preaching three weeks ago, Mike and Rochelle are leading the music, they have their precious daughter, and I'm preaching God does not send our suffering intentionally to refine us, and we're singing lyrics until God's wrath has been satisfied. And then we had a follow-up the next week. God does not send the wrath intentionally to refine us. And one of you came and said, I don't know what's going on if the universe is aligning, but you're here saying that. And on 3ABN this week, there's a whole lot of suffering conversation going on and an awful lot of quoting Ellen White. God does send our suffering. We won't always all agree on this. Oh, how I wish for Adventist thinking that Ellen White had never died for a lot of reasons. But had she lived through the last 160 years, wouldn't it be interesting to have conversation with her now? Had you seen the atomic bomb? Had she lived through the Holocaust? Had she lived through the AIDS pandemic? Had she lived through? Had she lived through? I would love to hear her conversation now. We don't get that. We will not all agree on these questions and answers, the answers in particular. I am reminded that in Adventist Christianity, new truth, new light, progressive light is usually revealed at the edges of the conversation, not smack in the middle where we all agree. So it's worth pursuing, especially when we don't all agree. Right? Does anyone agree to that? So glad. Fourth principle, fourth principle to guide our conversation. Maybe it is true that we will need to focus more of our time where God can be seen the clearest. For revelation comes in many places in the world, but the Bible tells us over and over again in very various ways the fullest expression of God is seen where? In Jesus, stated many times, but never more clearly than John 14, if you've seen me, You've seen the Father. So, I'm not sure why it is, but I get, I get a little irritated with the character of God, great controversy conversation, when outside of the Gospel of John, it seems like we go to Genesis, Job, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Revelation, sometimes a little Daniel, and the Gospel of John, and we piece together the great controversy. If Jesus is the fullest expression of God, doesn't it make sense to study Jesus? Is that right? So maybe what we need is to have our eyes on Jesus. Now I admit, because I'm biased towards the New Testament, that is where my graduate training is, and I happen to be very taken by Jesus of Nazareth, particularly his ethics, I admit that sometimes when I study Jesus, I'm studying to see how I should behave in this kingdom. But I'd like to study with you for seven weeks to see what does Jesus teach us about our God. If you look at Jesus, you're looking at God. If you see a violent Jesus, you see a violent God. If you, and you see how the list could develop. If you see a compassionate Jesus, you see a compassionate God. If you see a distant Jesus, you'll find a distant God. How about if we study Jesus to see what God's like? Jesus invites us to do this in Mark chapter 8, the question you know so well. 
that we've preached here before a couple of years ago when they're traveling through Caesarea Philippi, a very significant location, filled with all sorts of former deities, much power from the Roman Empire. Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? And they answer back, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say maybe you're one of the other prophets. And Jesus comes back to them and says, I don't care what all of them say. Who do you say that I am? What do you think? What do you think? It's an invitation to us. Come to me and now tell me what you think. When you visit with me, when you study me, when you learn from me, what are you seeing about your God? Who do you say that I am? So how is it going for you when you think about your God and and who your God is? Have you learned from Jesus? Are you up to learning more from Jesus? This is an easy conversation. For me, this began significantly. The summer I turned 13, we took a family trip, one of those road vacations Joy was talking about, with the toolbox. We toured the Mormon temple grounds. You know, you're not allowed to go into the temple, but after we visited the When we were done at the visitor's center, a two-hour tour there, I had a little shaking going on inside of me because I'd taken all of this in, and what I saw before me was rather startling to me because in the Mormon tradition, they they know of a man named Joseph who's special to their formation, and and there's something that happens with them in a field, gold plates in a field, and, and they have a prophet for their little group too, and And they're special and chosen and even peculiar in their own right, different from the rest of society. And I knew those ideas from being raised Adventist. I said, well, wait a minute. We have a Joseph in our tradition. Yeah, Joseph Bates. And we have something also that happens in a field, a cornfield, 1844. And and we have a prophet, someone, someone special for just us. And we're strange and peculiar and unique in the world also. I was almost 13, and I remember thinking, well, which is it? And so I asked my father, Dad, Joseph, field, prophet, peculiar little group, how do I know what's true? How do I know which which one has God? And it, it might be because Visitor centers are not such a place for probing questions that my father chose not to answer that day. It has set me, I believe, on a lifelong quest to know God. Who is your God? And will we be found like the rest of the world who, when they know all about identity theft, they do nothing to protect themselves? Or when we know, we'll do something else. Do you know your God? Would you like to know more? So go. Go in confidence knowing you have a God who wants to be known. A God safe where you can ask your questions. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the person of Jesus Christ. May that be your quest. Amen.